as you know, um, we're focusing uh, really over the Thanksgiving Christmas break on this series on the Bible, really on Scripture. Uh, I'm calling it the written word, just to kind of draw that out. And I really want to focus in this series on what the Scriptures claim for itself, right? So this is an incredibly crucial period of your lives. It's these young adult years where you're forming your convictions. And this is another one of those absolutely crucial convictions that we have about Scripture. What does this book claim for itself? Um, It's a book unlike any other book as we've seen. And um, it is of the utmost importance that we dial in and we understand the Bible's claims for itself. So why, just as, we're, as we've been chatting, why, is it, why do you think it's so important um, that we have these deep convictions uh, about Scripture? What do you think? Feel free to shout it out. You know, raise your hand. Say, say it again, louder. Yeah, everything rises or falls on what you believe about the Word. So we just came out of main service talking about Genesis 3, right? Where did it all go wrong? What happened? Adam and Eve started doubting God's Word, right? They, they disobeyed it because they doubted its truthfulness. And so everything, literally, it, for, for humans, rises or falls on God's Word. And for us today, that's this anthology of texts that we have. We call it the Old and New Testaments, our Bible. Um, God has revealed himself through his written Word. And so when we have these deep convictions, um, pop quiz, what's a psalm that really bleeds out these convictions about Scripture? Psalm 119, right. And what are some examples of... These convictions, when they come out, what does it look like in a, in a man's life, in this case, the psalmist of Psalm 119, what does it look like for him when he has convictions about the Bible? How does he respond? He delights in the law of the Lord. It's his, one of his greatest delights. He hides it in his heart, right? That's right. So he internalizes the scriptures to lead him and guide him. He rejoices in trials. Why? He rejoices in trials because the trials bring him back to the word. Right? He says, before I, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your precepts. Right? So he's thankful for trials because they even drive him back to Scripture. So my point is there is just, if you want to see convictions about the Bible, convictions about Scripture, look no further than Psalm 119. And when those convictions begin to take root in your heart, you'll find your heart responding similar to his. Um, lots, of, lots of things there. If you haven't already, go back and read that over the break. All right? So a little quick review here where we've been. Uh, in the first week, we looked at inspiration. What is that? Wow, we got to get on this, guys. Inspiration. Scripture is breathed out by God. That's right. Scripture comes from God, meaning God is the source of Scripture. That's what we covered the first week. Yes and amen. Key text. 2 Timothy 3, that's good. Yep, 16. And 2 Peter 1, yep, there's lots of other things we looked at. But again, just trying to give you some key texts on these. Inspiration, God breathe, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1. All right, God has, has revealed himself to us. He has inspired a book because he wants to communicate and reveal himself to us. And this, is, this book is a mercy for us rebels, right? Because we've darkened in our understandings, but God has condescended. He's come to us. God wants to relate to us. And he intends to relate to us through these written texts, through this written text of Scripture. All right, that was week one. Week two, we looked at inerrancy, right? Inerrancy, and what does inerrancy mean? All right, louder. Okay, without error, right, inerrant, okay? That's that's putting it in the negative. How would you put it in the positive? It's wholly true, that's right. It's completely true and trustworthy. 
We should stake everything on it because the Scriptures are completely truthful. Now, this doesn't mean, like we said, a technical exactness, like the Bible is written in a chemistry lab, and, you know, like, like the, every, every minutia has to be exact to the nth degree. The Scripture gives round numbers and things like that. But inerrancy is, has the idea of, of complete truthfulness of the original manuscripts. And so we said that the fact that the Bible is inerrant or completely truthful is a, is a great grace because we're not, right? We're not inerrant. So we need some outside standard to come to us and tell us what's actually true. Scripture defines reality for us. It is completely trustworthy. That's what it claims for itself. We looked at that week two. Week three last time, I believe. Is that right? We looked at the authority of Scripture. With the, the authority of Scripture. So what do we mean when we say that Scripture has authority? Okay, it creates an obligation. For something to have authority means it creates an obligation. What does that mean? Okay, yeah, we're responsible to do what it tells us. That, that Scripture is an authority is because God is our authority, and his, these are His words. And it's by default we're accountable as his creation, as his creatures. Since these, are, these words are God's words, they carry ultimate authority over us. Meaning, his words are not advice, they're not opinion. It's the highest and most comprehensive authority. His word is binding on all his creation, all his creatures. We must obey or we must face the consequences. But thankfully, our God, like we heard this morning, is abounding in mercy. He's abounding in grace. And He does not give us what we deserve. But He will not be mocked. Okay? He will not be mocked. So either we avail ourselves of His mercy, and we come under His authority, or we will be held accountable for our continued rebellion once and for all at the final judgment. That's what it means when it says this book has an authority over our lives and the lives of every human, no matter what religion you ascribe to. And not only does God's word have this ultimate authority, but as we're going to see this morning, it has the power to enforce it. That's the fourth attribute of Scripture we're going to look at. We're going to look at the power of Scripture, closely related to last time. So if you think of authority as sort of like, that's the badge, okay? The power is like the gun, right? You know, you've... you've He's got the authority, he's got the position over you, but he also has the power to carry out that authority and to bring everything into submission. In other words, the scriptures are not just words on a page. At first glance, it's what it looks like. It's certainly that, but it's more than that. The scriptures are an active power. They are God's own power. The scriptures are able to perform, able to accomplish all that God himself intends. And that's a great way to think about the power of scripture. When we say that scripture is powerful, we're saying, and I'm using the words of John Frame here. I've been quoting him a lot, but he's very helpful. He says that when we say that scripture is powerful, it means that scripture is able to perform all that God intends. Okay? Scripture is able to perform all that God intends. His words are able to perform all that He intends. Meaning God has plans. He's got His will. He's got His desires. He's got His decrees. And so His words are able to perform those those deeds. We're going to look at lots of examples of that. 
But as we get going, I want to, I want to show you sort of a key verse so we can hang everything on here. And that's a, a, one of my favorites from Isaiah 55. God's word will never go out from his mouth and return without accomplishing the thing that, that it was set out to accomplish. Ever. It will, that will never, ever happen. Isaiah 55. Beautiful text. Almost, almost just want to preach this this morning, but I'll just give it to you. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And in the context, he's talking about the restoration of Israel and the world. (laughs) It's a glorious promise. And he's saying, no one's going to stop me And no one's going to stop my words. When they go out from my mouth, they're going to accomplish everything that I intend. And that is power. God's power mediated through his words. He's always going to accomplish what he he intends. So, this morning, I just want to take a a crash course here on God's power and look at how really just several categories in Scripture that showcase the power of God's word. Okay? Okay? I think there's seven of them total. I changed this outline a lot, but I think I think it, I think I landed with seven. And uh, so let's let's look at some of these. Just looking at some examples in Scripture of the power of God's words, and I think we'll draw some implications from those for our lives this morning. All right, the power of God's word is showcased number one in creating the universe. So we will start where Scripture starts here in the power of God's word. And his, his word, the power of it, is shown in the very first pages of Scripture. God's word is able to call inanimate objects into being, fashion them. And this is absolutely staggering. And it's really the foundation for everything else we're going we're to talk about. It's God's, the power of his word in creation. And obviously, Genesis 1 is, is a key, is the text here I'm, I'm alluding to. And I'm just going to read some of these for you. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1-6, and God said, let there be an expanse, verse 7, and it was so. And God said, let the waters, he goes on, and it was so, verse 9. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, trees, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights, he goes on, and it was so, verse 14 and 15. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly. So God created. Verses 20 and 21. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And God made the beasts. Verse 24 and 25. So what's the point? (laughs) The word of God showcases his power. He's speaking. We don't have a category for this, guys. We We don't have a category for the power that we're talking about here. God speaks and calls forth into being things that do not exist by a word. It's staggering to get our mind around the kind of limitless power of God's words. The universe itself is almost incomprehensible. Like the thing he created, right? We we can't even get our minds around the the staggering size of the universe. It is mind-numbing. 
And that was all created instantly and effortlessly by God's Word. And the Psalms often reflect on the power of God's Word in creation. They marvel. They, they, they wonder at this. They, they reflect with awe and praise, and rightly so. Because this creating God is Israel's God and our God today. Psalm 33 opens up in a full-throated praise because our God made such a good world. Look at Psalm 33 here. We're just picking it up in verse 3. It actually starts in verse 1. It says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Why? For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So he meditates on this word, this breath that came from God. This effortless breath. God's breathing. And he's creating all there is. This kind of power, this kind of of, of power showcased by the word of God, the psalmist said, should cause every single human to fear, to stand in awe, to tremble before the Lord who made it. Look in verse 8. He says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let every inhabitant, all the inhabitants of the world, stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke. He spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's raw power. When, when we see, like, when we come into contact with raw power, like, in the world, we're afraid, naturally. Like, we tremble, and rightly so. Nobody wants World War III for lots of reasons, okay? But most of all, because it will almost certainly be a nuclear war. And that is power. And we tremble at that. But you can't even compare a nuclear warhead with God's word. God's words are in a class by themselves. They brought into existence the elements that we use to construct those bombs. Hurricanes, lightning storms, tsunamis, all these things are created things. And they owe their existence to something more powerful, to the words of the living God. We should stand in awe of him and his words, trembling at his words. That same psalm, Psalm 33, goes on to say that the words of piddly little humans are not like the words of God. Okay? Look at this. Our words, our counsels, our schemes, God brings to nothing. But His words, His eternal counsel, it stands forever. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord, however, stands forever, and the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom He has chosen is His heritage. Now in Christ, every single believer is included in this renewed nation like we we looked at last Thursday night. We're blessed to have this kind of God, to be His chosen heritage. So that means at a fundamental level, when we meditate on God's powerful, creative Word, we should rejoice because that God is our God. He is for us. He's not against us in Christ. And so we are blessed. All right? So the power of God's word is showcased in creation. When he created the universe, God simply spoke and everything there is came into existence. That's infinite power on display. 
But it doesn't stop here. His powerful word is showcased in a second way, and it's in sustaining that universe. He upholds it. He sustains it. He keeps it going. He's intimately involved. We could literally go all over the Bible for this this point here, but I'll take you to one key text because we've got to keep on moving this morning. We've got seven seven headings. Um, But the text I want to take you to is Hebrews 1, and it's Jesus' word that is described as actively upholding or actively sustaining or even bringing the universe to its intended fulfillment. Right? Look in Hebrews 1. Pick it up in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So there's creation again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and, here it is, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So again, connection between the word of Christ in this case, his power in upholding the universe. Not only did God's word create, but it also sustains literally all things. This, this, the universe is how the ESV translates that. It's literally just all things. So what does it mean? What's, what's, what's the author of Hebrews saying here? He's saying that Christ's word governs everything there is. Everything continues on as is because of his governing word. The sun comes up, rain falls down, the deer gives birth, says the psalmist, because of the word of God. Your heart beats consistently because of his word. He literally holds your life in his hands at all times. At every moment when you're awake, when you're asleep. And that is the sustaining power of his word. His word ensures the cooperation of all there is in fulfillment of his plans. And so, the words of God are words with the power to create out of nothing and to sustain all there is. And that's our starting point. That's our foundation when we're thinking about the sheer power of God's word to accomplish all that he intends. And if that's the macro, our next point is the micro. His powerful word penetrates down to our individual hearts exposing our deepest recesses, our true thoughts and motives. So we could say the power of His Word is displayed in this third way in revealing the human heart. God's power is put on display by His Word as His Word shines the light into our hearts and reveals what's there to us. So imagine that you walked in today into Boundless. One of your friends came up to you and they told you verbatim what you thought to yourself as you were walking in. I mean, that'd be very weird, right? But you were thinking, hmm, maybe they know me really well. Maybe they're able to anticipate that. Then let's pretend they told you, oh, by the way, you said this while you were munching on your Lucky Charms at breakfast. And you thought this while you were going to bed last night. And you thought that, and they just kept going. And you're like, stop. Like, that's bizarre, but that's power, right? Like, be able to read my mind like that? I would be a power to know their, your inner thoughts, your intentions. But do you realize that that's what the Word of God claims for itself? It claims that it knows your innermost thoughts, your deepest of intentions, your true motives. And in a very real way, the Bible knows you better than you do. 
And it displays its unique power as it reveals things to you about you that you didn't know. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. It says, the word of God. For the word of God is living, and here's a key word, active. We'll talk about that. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Okay, that's metaphor. What's he talking about? And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here, the author of Hebrews says that God's word is active. I, I underline that. It's active. It's what is that? What is that? What's the idea here? It means that it, the word of God has a divine energy in it, like a divine power. It is effectual. It's able to accomplish something, like we saw in Isaiah 55. But accomplish what? Well, he says, discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. The Bible, in a way that's unparalleled in any other written work, okay, will read you like an x-ray. That's what it claims for itself. It'll tell you what's actually true about you, and not only what you do, but why you do it. The thoughts and intentions of your heart. It'll reveal to you your root problems. I've said before, just to kind of be provocative, the Bible is its own psychology, right? It tells you who you are and what's wrong with you. And it's imperative that we yield to what it reveals, to the results of the CAT scan. Why? Because remember the last few weeks, because it's completely true and trustworthy, right? It's inerrant. It's the highest authority. Right? You can't argue with it. And now it's powerfully revealing to you what's actually true about you. You thought you were codependent, but the Bible says you're an idolater and you fear man. Like, whoa. Now you got a choice, right? Are you going to argue with the authority or are you going to yield to it? You thought you had a condition of social anxiety, but the Bible says you're sinfully afraid and that you're responsible for that fear. So what are you going to do? That's Hebrews 4. It's powerfully revealing to you the way things really are. But like we've said a lot in here, that's not all it does. <laughs> Praise God. It doesn't just bag and tag us, right? It illumines the way out. The way out of enslavement. The way out of perpetual victimhood. And the way to a fruitful and joyful and resilient and well-lived life. And that is a unique display of power. Power. There's no other book like it on earth. Okay? But not only is it, is it powerful to reveal, to reveal sin and to convict, but it, the power of Scripture is displayed even further, number four, in the actual creation of converts. Right? So it's one thing to sort of shine the light, expose. It's another thing altogether to then bring out something new, to convert the sinner. Just like God's word in the beginning brought something out of nothing in Genesis 1, so his word brings life out of death. He creates spiritual life from our spiritually dead hearts. And this too showcases the power of God's words. Now this theme's all over scripture, but I'll give you just a couple examples here. Um, Paul knew that the gospel that he preached, not in your notes, okay, was the very 
power of God, Romans 1.16. He knew that the gospel that he preached, the message, the words of God, were power, and power for salvation. The mere proclamation of the word of God is like lighting a match in a gas-filled room. Spurgeon's analogy, you let the lion out of the cage. (laughs) And Paul knew that. And that's why he never, ever, ever wanted to tamper, he says, with God's word. Why? Because he didn't want to detract from the power. He didn't want to, quote, empty the cross of its power, meaning the message of the cross. The power is in the message, not the messenger. He compares himself to a broken clay pot so that God's power will shine out of that. The message has power to bring life out of death, or we could say, use creation metaphor, light out of darkness, or light into darkness. And that's the metaphor he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at this. He talks about conversion like a second creation of sorts. Just like the first creation came from God speaking, so does this second creation, and it's it's illumining light into darkness. He says, for what we proclaim, here's the message, truth, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For, here's why we do that. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let's, let's hear the creation. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When the gospel is preached, God is illuminating. He's shining the revelatory light of the gospel into a darkened heart. That means, if you believed the message, however it happened, however it came to you, your mom, friend, you heard it, made sense to you, you're convicted by your sin, trusted Jesus, you've already experienced the power of God's words. He turned the lights on in your darkened heart. You've experienced a creation inside you. If when you heard the gospel, you saw the beauty of Christ, you saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, like he says here, God's word did that. Meaning he didn't just give you the option to believe. The word itself was the very power that affected your heart. It was the light that dawned. You would have had no opportunity, no ability to do that apart from the creative work of God in your heart. Now, did you feel all that? No, you felt conviction. You felt, this makes sense. This, you felt you heard the shepherd's voice. I got to follow that. Why? You were dead. Because he made you alive. Or because he shined light into your darkness. That's exactly what we see in Acts. Throughout that narrative, okay, you got a lot, of, a lot of things going on. People are taking the gospel out, they're preaching, they're persuading, people are believing the gospel. Jews are believing, Gentiles are believing, Jews are not, they're rejecting, some Jews are rejecting, they're persecuted. There's a lot going on, right? But when Luke, the author, steps back and kind of gives a summary of what's going on, it's like the word of God is its own character in the book of Acts, right? The word does stuff. Right? Look at this. And the word of God continued to increase. I thought disciples were increasing. No, it's the word that's actually doing the increasing. Okay? But the word of God increased and multiplied. Wait, what? And, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
So we get the point, right? Luke takes a step back. He stops. It's the word that is multiplying. What's the point? The word has power. It's the power of God unto salvation to accomplish all that he intends. That's what he intended. Spread the gospel from Judea, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And his agent is the word of God. So, I'm hammering that home because this has lots of implications. Right? Lots of implications. We're thinking about creation of converts. First, in our own lives, this should be a massive source of humility and joy. Because God, God came to you when you were dead and breathed life into your soul. He formed you from the, the spiritual dust, so to speak. So we should be humbled to that dust when we think about God's initiative in our salvation. No self-righteousness here, or there ought not be. And when it is, we repent of it. There should be humility and yet joy at the fact that God chose to do this in our lives. He came to us. He created us anew by his own power is a demonstration of his love and grace that we heard about this morning. Tremendous source of joy. Eternal source of joy there. And here's another implication, not just for us, but in terms of how we think about the gospel going forward. Right? In our evangelism, we can be confident. As we patiently and lovingly share the word in evangelism, we can be confident that as we do, the Lord will accomplish his purposes. Our brothers in London that we just heard about. It's not if. Omri Miles, we talked about him in the the missions offering. It's not if. The word of God will accomplish its purpose. The nations will come to know in the Savior. They will obey because the word of God will do it. So for us, it takes the pressure off, right? It emboldens us to open our mouths and share the words of life with another dead heart. Why? Because you don't have the power to create life. But this does. Okay? So we share this. We don't tamper with this. We preach this in the churches. But you might be thinking, what about people who don't receive the gospel? What about when people reject the Lord and they spurn his word? Well, lest we think the word of God has failed, we must remember that the word is never neutral or impotent. It always has power, power to bless or power to curse, softening or hardening. God's power is put on display through his words as his words harden his enemies. It's very, very clear in Scripture, although it's kind of hard for us to get our minds around sometimes. It's clear that when God's enemies don't heed the call to repent and avail themselves of God's mercy, this powerful word works but in an opposite direction. It actually hardens someone. And one example of this is Isaiah 6. It gets picked up several times in the New Testament, but we'll look at Isaiah 6 here. And Isaiah had a vision of God, okay, in this paragraph. Isaiah had a vision of God. I'll back up one step further. Uh, Israel's a nation just completely off the rails, Okay in their idolatry. So Isaiah has a vision of God on his glorious and holy throne, and then immediately in that vision, he's convicted of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of of, of the nation. Atonement's made for him 
in the presence of God, and then he's commissioned to go preach to Israel. Except this was not a mission that any of us would sign up for. Okay? This was a mission of hardening. And God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And here it is, make the heart of this people dull. It's his mission statement. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. You're thinking, what is this? How do we think about this? Well, to be fair, Israel is not in an innocent state. With God just kind of coming along, and just sort of, i to harden you, you know. That's not what's going on here. That's not the picture here at all, actually. This language of hardening is the language of God giving them over to their idolatry. The deaf and dumb idols that they worship. Remember, we talked about that on on Thursday night. They're becoming like the idols that they worship. That's what this language is, 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 is describing here. So the hardening, then, is a judgment for their failure to repent. For their rejection of his word of mercy. And obviously we need to add one more caveat here. This hardening isn't, apparently it's not irreversible. Because God can overcome any level of hardening, right? He obviously overcame our hardened hearts. I mean, how many of us rejected the gospel? And he overcame that. But when people spurn the word of God again and again, that word becomes a word against them. God won't be mocked, and he often gives his enemies what they ask for, and he hardens their hearts against his truth, by his truth. So that means, to use the words of Christ, we must take care how we hear. The word of God is always working, always powerful. It always transforms, yes, but it can also harden if you keep spurning it. If you continue on in your unrepentant sin, week after week, hiding it, excusing it, coming into church, acting one way, but you're actually something different. What's happening when the Word of God is being preached? You're not hearing it in faith. So something else has happened. So now confess your sin and seek someone out to help you. You will find mercy, full and free, and this Word will become not a source of hardening for you, but it will become life-giving and transformative power for your life. we got to know this. Right? And knowing that God's words always work, and no matter the response, this helps us in our evangelism as well, doesn't it? How so? Well, it's tempting to think that the Bible hasn't worked if someone rejects the message. You've been there? Your family dinner? Laying it on the line? You know, Aunt Susie is just like, no. Like, I don't believe this. Like, you, you talk all day long and not, 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 not coming around. You know, you're a narrow-minded bigot. Stop. Close your mouth. And it's tempting to think, well, it didn't work. That it, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't powerful in that instance. If it was, they would have believed, right? But we have to remember two things. First, God's power may be on display in a different way in their hardening unto unbelief. This is tragic for sure, but it does not mean the Bible is not powerful. It is, and thus the hardening. But we also have to remember that this isn't the end of the story for that person. Okay? 
if they're still living, if they're still breathing, it's not the end. Okay? We don't know exactly what the Lord is doing in someone's heart when we share the gospel because we can't see their heart. We see the fruit, we see the evidence, but only God can see the heart. Only God knows what he's ultimately doing. So sometimes it may look like he's hardening someone. They get really mad, they walk out, whatever. And then come to find out, they repented. Right? They couldn't sleep that night, it just it ate them alive, and then bam, they come around, you find out they believe the gospel. So it's our responsibility to share in love and to keep on pleading whenever we have opportunity, with whoever we have opportunity with, as long as we have opportunity with them, right? And we should entrust those results to the Lord. Because Isaiah 55, His Word is always accomplishing His purpose. Now, when we talk about the hardening effects of the Word, sometimes it's tempting to take this principle and apply it in the wrong way, okay? It's it's tempting to apply it to the, you know, we start wondering about the goodness of God, things like that. But that's the last thing we should do. All right, the Bible declares from cover to cover that he is overflowing in goodness. That he's perfect in all his ways. And it also tells us we shouldn't challenge him or evaluate God as his creatures. He's the creator, not us. So if he chooses to harden a sinner for their rejection of his mercy, that's his prerogative. It's his good and just response to someone's persistent idolatry. But there is a tension here, right? There's a tension and we feel it. And the resolution of that tension, the answer for that tension, it lies behind a wall that, that, and the scripture has not revealed that to us. One pastor mentor called it the wall of worship. What he means in these moments, we should stop and trust that he is God. We believe, okay, okay, there's some category for God hardening people in their, in their idolatry. But the Bible also says he's good. Feels like a tension to me as a creature? There's a wall. The resolution lies behind the wall, and God has not chosen to reveal that to us. We have to stop, trust that he's God, and we're not, not doubt his goodness. So what should this principle do in our hearts? Well, anytime we see God's sovereignty on display like this, it's always meant to bring comfort and assurance to God's people. It should encourage us, in other words. How so? When people reject the word, when our enemies mock the Lord, it's not happening outside of God's control. That's the point. Their very mocking is in accordance with God's plan. Okay, he hardens, and he can overcome that hardening in his perfect timing. So that means we can trust him. But what about for those who do receive the word, his precious people, those whom he's chosen to hear and to believe the word? Well, this same word, we've seen it over again, it continues to work, right? It continues to transform us as his people. Be quick here, but do you realize there's a unique power on display as God changes you from one stage of glory to another stage of glory by His Word? There's a power on display in you that's unparalleled in the world, and it testifies to the fact that real change is possible in Christ. Real power is here available in the church through the Word of God because His Word's at work in you, just like it was at work in you at the day of your conversion. Now, that's what we see in 1 Thess 2, verse 3. You can look that up later. John 8, 32 says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? Transformation will happen through the truth. And if you've got questions about that, we've done a whole series on that. We kind of talk about that ad nauseum, like in every sermon. So I'm just going to lay that out for you. 
Lots of implications from that. Give, our, give, you, give you the last one here, though. That this transformation is also revealed in the defeat of his enemies. Not the transformation. The power is revealed. The power of God's word is revealed in the defeat of his enemies. Not only does his word transform his people, but his word will bring judgment and ultimate defeat on every enemy. We see this throughout the Bible at various points. Isaiah describes the word of God as a sword that brings destruction. Jeremiah describes it as a hammer. Hosea talks about it as like God chiseling out his enemies um, by his word. Isaiah talks about it like a, a rod that comes out of his mouth. Boom! You know, like, a, like it's just going to strike down his enemies. But probably the best example, the one I want to show you, and the one we'll end with, is 2 Thess 2.8. It's at the end of history when Jesus returns and executes his vengeance on the final Antichrist. At the end of this age, things are bad now, but things are going to get much worse globally. And at the end of the age, there will be one world ruler who will arise and unite the world in opposition to Christ and his people who are here. He'll make all other world rulers throughout history look weak in comparison to him. And it will seem like, by all comparable standards, that he is undefeatable. Like he's conquered God's very people once and for all. According to Daniel 7, you can jot that down. He talks about that, Daniel 7. And at that point, when he seems to have triumphed, guess what happens? Christ returns from heaven and destroys him with a word. A word. Look at this. And then the lawless one will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. We've seen that throughout the Psalms. This time it's, it's a metaphor for the word of God. The, you know, kill him with the of his mouth. It's just Martin Luther, Mighty Fortress. One little word shall fail him. Right? I love that line. Because it's this. One little word shall fail him, meaning like, like, like you fell a tree, you cut it down. You know, that's what Martin Luther's saying. That's what he's getting at. So the Lord will demonstrate the power of his word in a final and climactic way at the end of history in the judgment over his enemies. And this gives us confidence in the battle. And confidence particularly in the word of God. Amen? So the word of God, this word that we hold in our hands, is God's very power. It's what it claims for itself from the creation to the new creation. All right? So trust it.